Welcome back to America's First 50 Years, our podcast about early American history. I'm Chris McKenna, and with me is my co-host, Kathy Conroy. Hi, Chris. In this podcast, we're going to discuss one of the key debates at the Philadelphia Convention, which centered around the structure of the legislative branch of government and the formula for representation. Remember, Chris, it's always all about the balance of power. On Monday, May the 28th, the beginning of the first full week of the convention, the Virginia delegation takes the entire day to present the Virginia plan and their ideas about the structure of the government. The Virginia plan envisioned a two-house legislature, keeping the representative house that currently existed and adding a Senate component, It also envisioned a national executive and the judiciary with upper and lower courts. On a very high level, the Virginia plan differed from the current structure of the Confederation of States in that most of the legislative and judicial responsibilities were currently executed by the Congress within the Confederation of States. The Virginia plan begins to divide and separate these functions i.e. a separate legislature, a separate judiciary, and moving some of the existing functions of Congress into this new national or executive level branch. And the newly proposed Senate component to be an equal chamber of the Congress with the House was envisioned by Madison to be comprised of a smaller, more elite group of people who could act as some sort of cross-check to the actions of the larger house chamber. The Virginia plan initially envisioned the representation formula for both the House of Representatives and the Senate component as being proportional to population. During their day-long presentation, the Virginia delegates highlighted the positives to the new plan that the envisioned national or executive level branch was one way to cure the problems of the existing confederation of states. How? Well, because with this plan, legislation relative to national or common interests could be created within the newly envisioned Congress and then implemented via the new executive branch. And thus, there could be a common currency and a common defense helping to better unite the 13 states. As noted in our prior podcast, from the beginning of the convention, one of the biggest concerns among the delegates was what state or states were going to have more power if the existing government was to be restructured. This was especially a concern of the small states who had the fear that they could essentially be gobbled up by the bigger states. These states did not want to lose the equal representation they had in the current confederation of states. And with the Virginia plan initially suggesting that representation in both the House and Senate be proportional to population, it was obvious that the equal power currently held by the smaller states and the states with an agricultural economic base and limited voting population would be eroded. In fact, this was such a big issue that it almost derailed the entire convention. 
Here are some highlights of the arguments regarding the representation formula for the newly envisioned Congress. Figuring out a representation formula for the House of Representatives was a very divisive topic, with both the smaller northern states and the southern agricultural states arguing that they would never accept proportional representation by population as they would be swallowed up by the larger populated states. The southern agriculture states also argued that they should be able to count their slaves as population. The northern states said there was no logic to that argument, given that slaves were considered property by the southern states, and thus if the south was just going to be able to count slaves as population instead of counting them as property, then why wouldn't the North just count cattle and horses, too, as population? Further muddying the waters was that after the Revolution, the Continental Congress imposed a tax on people to help pay for the national debt. And the Southern states said, well, the slaves aren't people, so we don't have to pay that tax. Now they're claiming, for the purposes of representation, that slaves are people. The North felt that they couldn't have it both ways. Well, when they recessed for the July 4th holiday, the delegates had still not sorted out the path forward on either the final structure of the newly envisioned legislature or the formula for representation within this body. And the lack of any resolution among the delegates was starting to make George Washington become very disheartened about the convention ever accomplishing the formation of a new and better government. This was the biggest sticking point of the convention, and it almost derailed the entire effort to create change in order to fix the problems inherent in the existing Confederation of States. Highlights of some of the debate in June prior to the July 4th recess included questioning whether a bicameral Congress under the Virginia Plan was even necessary. Bicameral meaning two separate bodies of Congress, in this case, the House of Representatives and the Senate. William Patterson of New Jersey suggested a unicameral, only one house uh, legislature with one vote per state. This eliminated any representation being influenced by population and kept the equal power that existed among the states in the current Congress within the Confederation of States. This proposal became known as the New Jersey Plan. Another suggestion put forth in June by both Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman of the Connecticut delegation was to have the House representation formula be proportional by population and the Senate be equal for each state. At first, this suggestion was viewed by many to be replete with problems, but ultimately it was adopted by the delegates as the solution. Compromise is often referred to as the Great Compromise or the Connecticut Compromise. And thus the structure of the envisioned Congress morphed somewhat from the Virginia plan in that the Senate chamber was now representing the interests of the states, while the House chamber was representing the interests of the population. Chris, relative to the Senate portion of the envisioned Congress, by the end of July, the representation issue within the Senate was resolved, with the delegates agreeing to the following. Senators would be appointed by their state legislature and represent their state. Of course, as we know today, that's not the case with the 17th Amendment, and now senators are directly elected by the population of their state. 
They also agreed at the time that states would have equal representation with two senators per state. And finally, that senators would vote independently of one another and have a six-year term. And this structure was favorable to the smaller populated states as they had equal representation with the larger states in this equal chamber of the legislature. Now, relative to the House, the delegates and the debates continued wrangling over the formula for representation in the House, and that lasted through late August. The debate centered on who should be counted in the population and what the formula should be. The northern states, whose economies were not built on agriculture and slave labor, wanted the population to refer only to free inhabitants, individuals who are not slaves, while many of the southern agricultural states with a slave population wanted the population to include their slaves. Basically, these southern states knew that they would lose power if the formula for representation did not include the slaves. During this heated debate, the southern states threatened to walk away from the convention, Chris. And so these discussions became very intertwined between the representation formula and the issue of slavery. Well, finally, a solution was offered by James Wilson of Pennsylvania and Roger Sherman of Connecticut, referred to as the Three-Fifths Compromise. This suggested compromise was for free inhabitants to count as one and for slaves to be counted as inhabitants at three-fifths of one within the formula of one representative given for every 40,000 of population. This compromise was for both representation purposes and taxation purposes. Thus, while the southern states increased their representation count in the House by having their slave population included at a three-fifth ratio, the northern states were able to support the compromise as the southern states would also be contributing to taxes relative to their slave population based on this same formula. Other issues that arose in late August and towards the end of the convention were directly centered around the issue of slavery. As part of the overall process of approving the Constitution, the southern states were able to further negotiate and secure agreement on the following, that the free states were to return fugitive slaves to their master. There would be a 20-year ban on any attempt of the government to bar the importation of slaves, and that House representation formula would be lowered to one representative for every 30,000 inhabitants. And with all of these elements, the issue regarding the formula for representation in the House of Representatives was finally agreed upon and the structure of the bicameral Congress was complete. Chris, it should be noted that during the course of the debates on the Senate and the House, not every delegate was happy with the resolutions and compromises. And before the end of July, several New York delegates had left the convention in protest thus causing the state of New York to lose its quorum for voting purposes on the Constitution at the end of the convention. And in our next podcast, we will discuss the key debates surrounding the creation of the executive branch and the office of the president.